Welcome to the Recession Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. Join your host, Sam Newell, as he educates you on how to make profitable, low-risk real estate investments that will cash flow through any economy. Hear interviews with the top real estate investors and entrepreneurs in the country to find out what they've learned and implemented since the 2008 recession. With over 10 years in real estate investing, it has become Sam's goal to help others invest for double-digit returns, but to also stay safe and not get caught in the next downturn. Tune in and become recession-proof. All right. Welcome back to the Recession-Proof Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm really excited to have Scott Crone on. And uh, Scott, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks, Sam, for having us. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So thank you very much. Likewise, likewise. We had a little bit of a scheduling conflict with COVID that interrupted things for me, but I'm glad you were able to find time to reschedule. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Well, Scott, this is fun. You know, you've you've quite the uh, background, and the name of this podcast is Recession Proof Real Estate Investing, and specifically, we focus on multifamily and kind of the do's and don'ts, uh, what people don't do well, what they do do well. So, one of the first things I typically ask my guests is, what are some of the big mistakes you've seen people make when buying distressed properties or buying any type of real estate asset? Well, it, it's always a great question. I think the biggest mistake that people make, whether it's a recession or not a recession, is overpaying for the property. You know, there's the conception you make the money on the backside, but I'm a firm believer that you make the money on the front side on the acquisition. And so, you know, we're, we're always backing into the number. And for us, it doesn't matter if it's a recession or not. We're, we're trying to get that most competitive pricing available because ultimately we're competing against the marketplace. So if we can buy it below what our competition is and then improve it and still be below our competition, then we have a competitive advantage. So that's what we're always looking for is how to create that competitive advantage. I love it. So the money you make in real estate, and this is really important, is in the purchase price. It's in the purchase, not the sale. So the market's going to determine to a certain extent what you can end up selling for by looking for the right deals, and this is why we really like distressed assets, you can buy under market. You can, you know, if the market's willing to bear a million bucks, but you find a distressed asset, that's what makes it great. You can buy for less than it really should be worth. And so let's dig into that a little bit. How do you, how do you pay, you know, less than what the market should be willing to bear, in a, especially in a hot market like this? Well, you know, my background is in multifamily. You know, my when I was getting my master's degree in architecture, my master's thesis was a 400-unit multifamily development that wow. sold for about $100 million. Wow. Now, I worked on that for six years and then did other multifamily projects at the same time, um, working for my, my employer at the time. So, you know, we, we've seen during that period of time, so I started in 91. So since 91, there's been like four major recessionary tracks during that period of time. And you know, whenever we're looking at, there's there's different ways in which an asset is distressed, right? There's bank issues, there's uh, underutilized in terms of asset class. So, you know, you're not maximizing the value of it. So what we're looking to do is we're looking for properties that do, have not been utilized to their best use. Mm -hmm. And so therefore we're able to get it quote unquote distressed because of the fact that it's below market value compared to other assets in that class. So for instance, we just bought 
a building a couple weeks ago in Louisville, Kentucky. Mm-hmm. We bought it for basically $14 a square foot. Wow. So I, I can't build that building for $14 a square foot. It's 144,000 square feet. We bought one in Dayton. It's 90,000 square feet. We bought it for a million dollars. Wow. We bought one in Toledo for, again, 90,000 square feet for $1.7 million. That's between you know, $10, 11 $12 a square foot. For us, that's considered a distressed asset because I can't build that building that shell for that same price. So when I go in, I already have a competitive advantage against my competitors because my shell is $11 a square foot. And when I go in and put my improvements are self-storage lockers, which to me is apartments without toilets right. and tenants. You know, it's, it's, it's more of a dumbed down, you know, you have condos, apartments, self-storage. They're, for me, they're all in the same, you know, genre of rental units. Right, multifamily or multi-units. Multi-units, right. So for me, you know, when I look at that, if, if I know that a new construction is at $60 a square foot or $80 a square foot, then I have a competitive advantage for being below that. I love it. I love it. And, you know, this is exactly what we focus on. We work hard to, you know, you, you still want to buy in a good area, a good location. But, yeah, if you can buy for less than what you can build, that makes a lot of sense. And if you can do things to improve the property and raise rents. So, you know, you don't want to just buy any any old distressed asset. I heard you mention Dayton, which I was just there a couple months ago looking at properties. But I'm kind of curious, what what do you look for and what makes it worth buying as a distressed asset? Well, we're, we're looking within a three to five mile radius max. So even if you said Dayton mm-hmm. or Louisville, where we just bought, or Toledo, or Wisconsin, where, you know, Madison, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, Milwaukee, wherever we own these facilities. We're not looking at the city. We're, we're looking at that specific location, and then what is the market around within three to five miles? And that's, that's a vastly different comparison to multifamily. Because multifamily, people will travel a little bit further in order, you know, they, they're willing to pay a price, so they find an apartment that they're willing to pay. But then they might drive an hour 40 minutes to go to work. Most people are not going to drive more than 15 minutes to do their self-storage facility. So our market is a lot more focused, a lot more concentrated. And so what we're looking for is supply and demand. What is the, that ratio Mm -hmm. and is there market for us to, to absorb within that? And so it's square footage, you know, number of square feet of lockers per capita is the ratio that we're looking for. And on the national level, that's around seven. Mm-hmm. If we're below seven, then we know it's a market to go into. And then we look at the rental rates. We look at what the absorption will be and all those sorts of things and the demographics of the community because we'll alter the locker size based upon the medium income of the, of the, of the neighborhood. Got it. Okay. So those are two really interesting data points that you look at. So square feet per capita, basically. So seven square feet of or under of available storage space per capita or per person, Mm -hmm. and then you look at the average income of the area to determine what size is going to be the most profitable or most lucrative size of unit to offer. And I'm sure you have different sizes that you offer, but that's really interesting. I hadn't heard that before of really looking at the medium income to uh, determine unit size. And I know quite a few people, people that own these. So what have you found? I'm curious, do you have uh, a type or a unit size that just kills it for you that no matter what does really well that you look for or 
do you want to disclose that? <laughs> Our eight by nine and a half killed it. <laughs> nice. No, nice. no it, it's really based upon the medium income. So, you know, the more affluent the community is, then they're willing to pay a higher price for square footage for larger lockers. The less affluent the community is, they're willing to pay a higher price per square foot for smaller lockers. Got so it. the average is, is 90 square feet. So in those markets, our medium income is a slightly below. And so we're, we're dropping that down on an average to 75 square feet per, per locker. Okay. And, and so we, we will command a higher price per square foot for our smaller ones than our larger ones. So we look at that, that makeup and that configuration so that we have enough of the smaller lockers to create that 75 square feet of locker on average. You know, when we were built, we had the facility in the most affluent community, all our 10 by 20s were sold up because people would remodel and they'd come and rent like eight oh. or nine or 10, 10 by 20s at one time. Huh. You couldn't rent the 10 by 10s. So we took out the inner wall between the two 10 by 10s and made them a 10 by 20 and they leased up in a week. Really? Hmm. So we actually decreased the number of units, but increased our square footage occupancy. Yeah. So wow. th that's one other advantage that we have within self-storage compared to multifamily. When I would own my apartments, it was like I had a certain number of one bedrooms and I had a certain number of two bedrooms and I couldn't change that. Right. So right. If, the, if the market changes, then I can, you know, add walls, take out walls. I can, I can change I like the configuration. That. Yeah, I mean, if an area becomes more affluent, if if a development comes your way or, or growth, you can make the units larger or vice versa. You can make the units a little bit smaller or separate them, put in some walls. I had uh, actually never heard of that. I've, I've studied storage units quite a bit. It's one of the asset classes we really want to get into and invest in in the future. We haven't made the jump yet because we're doing doing all right in multifamily. But I actually had never thought about that. So I really like what you just said about changing those unit sizes based on the demographics and the average income. Wow, that's, you learn something every day, right? That's the goal. Very nice, very nice. So how long have you been doing this? How long have you been buying distressed uh, uh, storage unit facilities? Well, we don't buy distressed storage facilities. We buy distressed buildings mm -hmm. and then we convert them into self-storage. Oh, so okay. each of the buildings that we're buying are either empty or underutilized in terms of their existing use. Dayton was completely empty. It had been empty for about 40 years. And actually an wow. apartment guy tried buying it and converting them into apartments, but he couldn't get the parking requirements. And so therefore, you know, there wasn't a market. He, he couldn't accomplish what he wanted to do based upon what he paid for the building. So therefore that's where we came in and bought it from them. And so, wow. you know, when we're looking at existing facilities and we're, we're beginning to do that, we're looking at market inefficiencies that we can improve upon in order to increase the performance. It's, I got into self-storage because in the last crash, the great crash, I had a client who wanted me to find him at distressed self-storage facility. I couldn't find one. It was, we spent like two years trying to find one and maybe it was a nine cap and you could take it to an eight cap, but you know, it, it, it did not meet the definition of distress, which is what really caught my interest in it. And so um, it was in 13 that we, uh, found a building to convert and we converted it for him and we also owned a portion of it and then we flipped the whole thing and we sold it upon CFO and so that was that was my entry into self-storage and when I began transitioning out of apartments. Interesting wow that's so neat and, and that was one of my questions I was about to ask you is where were you during the crash and what did you see happening because 
you know, I, I started in single family and I was seeing 50% discounts, you know, and, and bought some fantastic flips and, and did really, really well. And then got into multifamily kind of wish I had, had been in the multifamily gig earlier, but you know, they didn't, they weren't dis- distressed as much as the homes either. And it sounds like the, the storage units weren't nearly as distressed as either of those asset classes. A couple of questions you asked, so I'll, I'll go back to them. Yeah. So the first question was, where was I when I learned about, I was woke up and I was brushing my teeth when I heard the <laughs> bank crashed. And I was like, oh my gosh, what is this really going to mean? And I had no idea what was in store for the future yeah. when Goldman Sachs crashed. You know, but leading up to that, I had seen what had happened with the internet bubble before when Greenspan was talking about, you know, bursting the bubble on the internet stocks. And so I had the premonition when he was talking about how there was going to be a bubble burst within the real estate market that we stopped buying land to develop. And so when I say land, that means buying an existing house and knocking it down and, and building a new one and selling it for you know, three and a half, four times the value of what we bought it for. Right. So, you know, right before that, we bought a house for like 500,000. We put another 500 into it and I sold it for 1.65 million and I had 10% down. Wow. And so, you know, my, my rate of return was enormous. Yeah. But I got chewed out by my other local developers for undercutting the market. Oh my God. Because they thought I, I sold it for about 150 under market. Oh my and God. And I was like, look, I'm out, I'm done. So at that point in time, I was only sitting on a three and a half million dollar home mm-hmm. and I was sitting on a $2.8 million home. And okay. my competitors were sitting on lots of land that they had bought overpriced and were, you know, planning on developing it down the future. And so that's where, you know, the bank lost its shirt and um, went under our, the bank that I was had my loans with. And so we didn't turn a single property over to the banks during the recession. Good for and you. Um, we, we sold awesome. both of them. But the, the second part of your question was about, re- refresh my memory. Yeah. So the level of distress or storage units being distressed during the, the Great Recession and, and how those right. compared to single family investments and multifamily investments. Thank you for helping me remember there. It's a, yeah. you know, a little bit of gray here. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> so I've also gone back and looked at and studied the market for self-storage during those four-year recessions. Mm-hmm. And in each recessionary market, self-storage dropped one to 2% and then rebounded two or three or four points more. Okay. So that's where, you know, recession proof is a, is a very strong in term in, in terms of legalese and, sure. <laughs> and real estate. Right. I so I, I deemed it, I was a little bit more cautious, Re- recession resistant. That was a term that I was a little bit more comfortable with because of the fact that it, it does come down but rebounds. But in all the asset classes I've been involved in, whether it's you know new construction, multifamily, new construction, single family, flips, single family, apartments, commercial, retail, and self-storage. So I, I've done each of those types of uh, real estate. I, I haven't seen any that has only gone down one or two points in a recessionary market and then rebounded. Right now in this, you know, it's arguably whether we're in a recession right now, because we've only had one downward quarter and then we rebounded, but everyone's sort of projecting another downward quarter. You know, the last house that we did, we bought it for $220,000. We put 440 into it to build a new home. 
and we thought we would sell for about a million fifty. And we had a 20% drop and we sold it after renting it for a year at 850 to break even. Wow. No wow. explanation. There, there was Trump got into office in uh, one in November. Mm -hmm. There was a huge spike of sales in January. We came on the market in February, just in time for the spring market. And there wasn't another new construction sale for the rest of the year. Wow. No explanation. And, and that's one of the things that I, why we've moved away from those markets is because of the unpredictability of it. Yep. There's, a, there's a very predictable spending pattern and buying pattern within self-storage in the lockers. And that's one of the biggest things that we look for is that consistency in the marketplace. And so, um, you know, that's the reason why we're, we're focusing our efforts on that. I love it. I love predictability. Now, just like you said, study the numbers and really understand what you can expect. You know, I think with a multi or a single family market, what you can expect is nothing to make sense. And during <laughs> coronavirus, we all thought, I mean, I thought the shutdown was going to kill the market. And I sell real estate in Utah and Idaho still. And it's, we have the hottest markets we've ever seen in my entire career. 15 offers on homes and housing shortages and people moving here. And, you know, so, um, you know, 2007, 2008, no one could have predicted that houses would drop 50% in equity and there'd be massive foreclosures. But what we've seen in multifamily is much more stability. And what I've also noticed and the reason we're, we are very excited to get into eventually storage units is stability and predictability. And I think that's great. I think that's fantastic. And, and that's the whole goal of this podcast is to help educate people on why maybe one asset class that people tend to start with, which is single family, isn't the asset class that maybe can be a really great long-term investment. And that's the goal for my clients, my investors, everyone I talk to is to help them look at it at a very long-term, long perspective. You know, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And if you look at it as a sprint, you're, you're going to get in trouble. So how long do you plan on holding these assets? Do you flip them? Do you, you know, have the ability to hold them long-term? What is your uh, kind of idea or your business plan that way? Well, I think to sum up what you were describing, the differences between income and wealth, you know, single family homes in my mind generate income, but they, they may not necessarily generate wealth depending on the volume and the size that you're doing. Sure, you can develop wealth in, in anything that you're doing, but I think that's the main distinction is what, what is occurring between the two. So yeah. our strategy is, you know, in the last three that we've done, so Toledo, Dayton, and Kentucky in Louisville, they're all in opportunity zones. So one of the things that, you know, is attractive to our investors is the fact that we're sheltering capital gains. And so we're, we're always looking for a way in which to increase their yield on their investment. So we've done historic tax credits where we're getting back $1.5 million in historic tax credits back to our investors. We've got the opportunity zones, which, you know, will basically give them a 30% tax shelter. And then the next thing is that we look to see how fast we can refinance it and pull their equity out. And then they stay in the, in the project to increase their yield further. And so those are all of our strategies. But first and foremost, you know, I'm a real estate developer. So everything is for sale. Maybe not my kids, according to my wife, but <laughs> everything is for sale at the right price. So if, if we determine that, hey, the, you know, one time we sold off cell towers, I bought them at a 17 cap 
and I got an offer to sell them a three cap. Wow. So I was like, no brainer. And, and they wanted a 30 year lease. And that's how the conversation began. They wanted a 30 year lease with escalations in it. And I was like, are cell towers really going to be around in 30 years? You know, what's the likelihood that there's going to be value after 30 years? So I called up, you know, my, my friend who's in programming and, and the, um, the data behind cell, cell phones. And I said, do you think that in 30 years it's going to be a terrestrial system or is it going to be a satellite system? He said, it's, it's all going to go satellite. So I was like, if I can get a three cap, I'll sell these things. And so that's what we did. And we returned our investors equity and most of them, 90% of them rolled it into the next deal. And that's how they were able to acquire two assets using the same amount of money. I love it. It's a great story. So everything's for sale for the right price. Like exactly. <laughs> and so, and I think one, one point I always try to make is you don't want to be forced to sell. So you guys bought with a long-term in mind and you could have kept it and done very well. But, you know, there's a way you can structure loans and structure deals where you can hold it long-term, but with the flexibility, if someone comes in and wants to pay a three cap, that you can go ahead and sell it. But you don't want to be ever forced to sell at a certain time, especially, you know, I'm talking about people that buy with a two, three-year bridge loan or, you know, the market has to be great and, and they get a three, four, five-year loan and, and they overpay and, and then the market, you know, doesn't do exactly what it's supposed to in their business plan and they have to sell at that point. So we make sure to get long-term loans because of that mm -hmm. with uh, just as much flexibility as possible to be able to sell early if, if we need to, if we want to, if it's profitable, but to hold long-term and really wait out any type of future res recession that may come. Absolutely. I mean, it's, that's a critical component to it. You know, what we like to say in the office is the best time to sell is when you don't have to. I love you it. have the most leverage because you can just walk away from the offer. I love it. I love it. Yep. I think that's one great quote. Another great quote that, that I heard you say is building uh, income, generating income versus building wealth. And let's go back to that because I think people jump into real estate investing because they want to make some extra income or they think they're going to get rich quick or, you know, it's enticing. They see people on HGTV uh, making a bunch of money on a flip. And I think if you come in with that mentality, I think a lot of the times you get stuck chasing the next deal and stuck um, probably working longer hours and, and in, in more stressful deals. I think if you come in as an investor who wants to build wealth and realize that it's a long-term game, I think that's a much better strategy. And that's what I really try to preach to people is don't be in it for a quick buck because it's kind of the golden handcuffs. You're going to get sucked into that chasing these yields, potentially sucked into the wrong deals. So curious if, if you can expound on the building wealth aspect. Well, absolutely. The, I mean, I think on the HET, you know, they see the person made 40, 60, $70,000 on a deal. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you're, if you're, salary for the year is 40 or $50,000. then of course, $70,000 looks phenomenal, right? Yeah. Okay. But one of the things that when we've done real estate coaching is, you know, look at the level of risk you're taking. You know, if someone says to me, like, I made $70,000 on this deal. I said, okay, well, what's your cost base? And they're like $3 million. I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, that's like, like one price correction and you're losing money. You're right. Gone, yeah. 
so that's not a great situation. So what we're looking for is situations where obviously we have to pay the lights, we have to keep things on and, and, and do those sorts of things. So obviously there's ways in which we make money within the deal, but ultimately we're changing the use and then therefore changing the ultimate value of it. So we're looking to always force depreciation. We were doing that within single family houses. We were doing that within condominiums, individual condominiums, as well as condominium buildings or apartments is, you know, forced depreciation, changing the program so that you're altering not just the income level, but the overall value of the asset. And to me, that's where you generate wealth is when you change the program of a building. And that's why we're doing the conversions. You know, we're, we're taking empty buildings and altering the use to get a much higher level of value out of them. So, you know, we'll buy a building for, you know, a million, $2 million, put a couple of million dollars into it. And instead of it being, you know, five and a half million dollars, it becomes a $9 million asset. You know, yeah. we're, we're greatly altering the value of it. And that's where we're generating wealth. I love it. And for me, it's, it's hard. And I try to convert people constantly from the golden handcuffs of creating this income to the long-term best play of, of creating wealth. But I think what, the way you explained it is, is just great. And man, I, I wish I talked about this more with, with other guests because that's, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I think that's really the best, I'm, I'm partial, but that's the best strategy to have. And, and that's the best mindset to have. Um, and we, when we go back to the Great Recession and how to become recession-proof, I think that's the only way to really do it. And, and to really have that long-term play and, and build that wealth that way. So storage units, I, I'm curious about, you know, do you have any type of building or shell that does better? Because around here, there's shop codes that have gone out of business. I've seen mm -hmm. that I thought would be interesting. Um, I know Walmart is closing a couple of their smaller stores or their older stores, um, TJ Maxx. There's a few different buildings I've noticed is going out of business and I'm just kind of curious if you've seen one type of shell. You mentioned a 40-year-old or more older building in Dayton or had been vacant for 40 years. What type of actual shell or age or type of building has done better for you? Those big boxes would be phenomenal because of the fact that, you know, you probably have to replace the roof, but maybe update the mechanicals, but the lighting, the fire suppression, they typically have a loading dock, all those sorts of things are already set up. So we don't have to spend as much money doing those things. The bigger challenge with those is if, if the municipalities will allow the zoning to be changed to take out the retail to put in self-storage. So that's been our biggest hindrance. I mean, we, we did look at one former Menards, which if you don't know that, if you're not here in the Midwest, it's like a Lowe's or a Home Depot, okay. but it's, it's just strictly, um, you know, in the Midwest, but they have a guy in the net, you know, their son is on the NASCAR circuit and his Menard bright yellow, car and stuff like that so you might be familiar with it yeah but you know it was there's a hundred thousand square feet it was on 17 acres we could have done an out lot you know we wouldn't have had to change mechanicals we could just come in and put in lockers and, and be done with it but the saturation rate was so high it was like nine and a half before we oh. even started so with us it would have been close to 11 and so there was just no way we could ever make that market work another one that we tried going after uh, we, we got outbid and that's fine. If someone wants to overpay for an asset in our mind, great. Um, no harm, no fall. We'll, we'll move on and find something else. So those big boxes are perfect from that, from a conversion point of view. Otherwise, what we're looking for is something that's very regular. So something that has a regular structural pattern, 
more rectangular or square works well. We need a loading dock. In each of our facilities, people drive into the building to unload. They're not unloading outside. They drive in, the doors come down, they're dry, safe, and secure and warm or cool during the summer. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that we look for is what's, what's the ability to get cars in, what's the ability to get trucks in, you know, how efficiently can we lay out the lockers? And then, you know, how good of condition is the structure in to accommodate the changes that we need to make? Got it. And and you mentioned a price per square foot that you're buying. You said, I think, 15 a square foot on on one of the buildings that you just bought? Yeah, Louisville was uh, $14 a square foot that we just bought. Awesome. Awesome. And do you have a price per square foot that it takes typically to remodel these buildings up to your standards? Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we're looking to be under 60 total. So, um, cause that, I mean, to build the new ones around 80. So if we have a 20 basis point, we're, we're in good shape, but so what we're looking for is we can pay more on the purchase if the building's in better shape, but the worse the shape of the building is, then obviously the price comes down. And then we, we do a comparison overall what the market is willing to do in rents. And so, you know, bottom line is the price of the land or the building is the, is the last number we back into. So it's like, this is what we can afford to pay. Yep. You know, and when we were negotiating Toledo, you know, on one building, they they wanted us to buy the building for eighteen dollars a square foot, mm-hmm. and we knew our competitors were at fifteen, and so we, U-Haul had bought one for fifteen and converted the building. So we're like, "There's no way I'm going to be at eighteen because I'm on three dollars in the hole already." Right. So we ended up buying it for eleven. Wow, very nice, very nice. Well, so, and so that makes sense. And I want to repeat that. It's just so um, I think you did a good job explaining it. But if I understand you right, you're going to figure out, okay, if, if it costs me $80 a square foot to build a new, a new storage facility, I want to have a good delta between what I end up my all in cost versus, you know, otherwise it's, it's doesn't make sense to remodel. It just makes sense to buy, build new. So if there's a good delta that you can create, you know, so you're all in a $60 a square foot. But how do you figure that out? You get the bids, you figure out how much it's going to cost to remodel what your total square square footage is. Maybe it's $45 a square foot to remodel um, to have the type of facility that you want to have that's clean, dry, cool, taken care of, you know, looks good. And then you're paying $11, $15 a square foot, all in 60. I guess one of the questions with the remodel, though, is, when you're figuring out all the costs and what you're going to do inside, have you had any challenges on the changing the exterior appearances in order to get those zone changes from the cities? Because I know cities can be sticklers on, you know, what they see their town looking like. And I don't know if they, a lot of them want to go from a Lowe's type building to a storage facility. So I'm just curious about any money or time spent on the exteriors of the building. Yeah, the the Lowe's won't really change on the exterior. So because they're pretty much a big box anyways, they don't have a whole lot of windows. Um, Yeah, we have had problems. Um, You know, we we do specifically with the Toledo, you know, Wisconsin, actually Chicago, Wisconsin, Milwaukee, Toledo, Dayton, and Louisville were all zoned as of right. So that what, what that means is we already had the entitlements, we could come in day one, pull a permit without having to go through any special uses or zoning because of the fact that the buildings were already zoned for it. So that's one of the key things that's that huge. we look for. <laughs> After we bought in Wisconsin, they came back and said, despite the fact we gave you a certificate of occupancy, we're revoking it because we've changed the definition of, of 
storage. So we've created storage and self-storage. So therefore you don't have your occupancy anymore. Wow. So, so we had to rezone it. And they, they were cooperative with us because they realized that this was a, an administrative type decision, not a, not a use decision. Mm-hmm. Um, in Toledo, after we had the building permit, we were been building for a couple months. We started getting these red tickets for stop work orders for failure of code. The first one was for replacing the roof. Hmm. We're like, what, what, you know, what's going on? Why are we getting a stop work order for replacing the roof? Yeah. I called up the city and they said, you don't have a permit for that. I said, what are you talking about? It says right here in the plans, replace roof. Yeah. And we have a permit. So what, what is being, then they said, well, that's the only up there roof. And it's not the lower roof. And I said, it's right there. Replace roof on that. <laughs> this line. Yeah. Yeah. And then it became, you know, the windows had corrugated metal over them and they were rusted in different colors and all this. And so we thought it'd be really nice just to pull off the old rusted stuff and put on nice new monotone, you know, corrugated metal, just like was already over the windows. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the Toledo Warehouse Architectural Review Committee, the head of it lived down the street and just absolutely went berserk on the building mm-hmm. and said how we were building without a permit and, and basically tried to shut us down for three months. Wow. Um, because of the fact that um, he didn't like it. It, yeah. it was as simple as that. He just didn't like it. And, you know, it got to a point where, you know, this is where my background was in architecture came very much in handy and having gone through the PUDs because ultimately they can't make a decision based upon what they like. That, that's called arbitrary and capricious. Right. It has to be based upon the code. And so, you know, having designed award-winning buildings myself, international design awards, uh-huh. you know, I, I have a little bit of background in design and aesthetics. And so I said to him, you know, like, where in the code does it say we can't do this? You know, if I'm looking at the code, it says we're able to replace materials with like materials. We've done that. Right. It says these are acceptable materials. And here's examples within your own city where you've approved these things. And so, you know, then it became, you know, a battle, if you will, of how much money they were going to make me to spend in addition to what I have already planned because I already had my permit. Yeah. To, to change it to appease one neighbor who's a self-appointed committee member. Yeah. Interesting. And how did it turn out? We had to put plexiglass over the corrugated metal to make it look like windows. Interesting. And so j- just so our listeners really understand, I mean, the city can essentially strong arm you into doing things like this. Now, it may not be actually in the code, but I mean, what were the consequences if you didn't comply? They're going to... Well, they held up my certificate of occupancy for three months. Yeah. So, so you I could mean, sue they- them and you could wait longer in court and not make money and not be able to finish your project. Or you could try to talk some sense into them and meet them in the middle. Or try to minimize the damage as much as possible. So I'm not meeting them in the middle. But yeah. And, and that was, this is what was really interesting that they said that we had to have windows on our building. 40% of the, the elevations had to be windows. I said, the existing building's not 40%. So you're now telling me that I have to go in to an existing building and cut open walls that historically aren't wall windows and make them windows. And then you're going to have glass looking in to see people's stuff in a self-storage locker. That's what you're telling me that you want is to be able to look into a building and see people's stuff not neat, not nice, packed into a self-storage facility. 
And they're like, well, no, that's not what we want. We don't want self-storage. I'm like, well, that ship has sailed, guys. <laughs> this, is, this is zone for self-storage. So you yeah. can't stop that. Hmm. And so when I suggested that we put plexiglass over them, I had to prove to them that the construction technique that I was proposing was actually the definition of a window. Hmm. Because the corrugated metal was the backside of the buck. Then we had our glazing. And then I put a buck on the front side mm -hmm. and they're like, well, that's not a real window. And I said, what's the definition of a window? A window is glazing between two bucks. So my buck is corrugated metal. And then which you won't be able to see because we made it a dark color and you know, like a tinted window. Mm -hmm. And then I have a buck on the outside, which is the frame around the window. So how does this not meet the definition? And then wow. like, well, we want to see mullions. So now I'm adding mullions, dividers inside the windows because this window, why? Yeah. Because this person arbitrarily wanted a pattern. Yeah. Interesting. You know? So, you know, plexiglass, buck, now I'm paying twice for the window opening. Mm -hmm. Now putting mullions in it, my cost just keeps going up. So I was trying to minimize that by saying, okay, I'll put a two by two grid pattern versus a, a three by five or a four by six or whatever. You know, the more elaborate it is, the more money it is. So I was trying to minimize that. Right. Right. Wow. What what an interesting story. And and you know, I've developed fourplex communities with uh, partners and had very very similar experiences. Actually, had a project denied based on the personal preferences of of the city council. Uh, we met all code, and but just like you're saying that you know they said they wanted it this, they wanted it to be this way, and we couldn't meet those arbitrary made up standards and it made the project way too expensive. And so we ultimately said, here's what meets your code. Here's what, as much as we can accommodate. And we're trying to accommodate, you know, Mr. and Mrs. and all the different city council members. And they ultimately said, no, if, if you're not going to do it the way we want it built, we're, we're going to deny you the project. And they did. So they did that twice to us. We ultimately got um, two of them approved, but, um, or two out of the three approved. But yeah, it's interesting how cities can be be like that. And, and I think it's really important that if people want to get into doing this, they understand that just because it meets code does not mean you're going to get this stamp of approval. And that's that's where it pays to, to have the experience and know what you're doing. Well, I, I think one way in which, you know, you know, going back to the beginning of our conversations about recessions, one way specifically that recessions help developers is the fact that in a recessionary market, municipalities are more likely to approve those sort of changes because they're trying to spur growth. They're trying to spur development. When when the market's hot, like in your market, mm -hmm. and people are, are just doing whatever they want, and you know, then they think they have all the power in the world because then it's like, hey, we, you know, if your market's so hot that I can, I'm going to get my pound of flesh. Yeah. That hundred million dollar project that I was working on, that was my master's thesis. We had to donate five acres to create a local fire department. Wow. So, I mean, that was 10% of the property was gone to the fire department. So that was, and we started off with a thousand apartments and we went down to uh, 316 uh, multifamily, mm -hmm. 64 townhomes and 16 single family homes. So if you think okay. about it, we, we had a 60% drop in occupancy. Wow. That's a huge loss revenue factor. Huge. And this was, you know, the beginning of, uh, the growth spur of multifamily.
Yeah. And, and I think you get a lot more of that in a growth cycle. You get nimbyism, not in my backyard. <laughs> get... That happens with all self-storage. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. For self-storage for sure. And that's why I asked you about the exteriors of the building, because I, I've been curious how people like you've been tackling the people who don't mind a commercial or storefront, but for some reason they just really don't want self-storage close to their home or close to where they shop or whatever they do. So, um, you know, I do I mean, know one developer. Oh, go it's ahead. It's interesting because we're, we're, we're deemed essential. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in an urban market it is an essential component of a, of a healthy cityscape because of the fact that, as you know, apartments aren't generous with closets. Yeah. You don't have a basement. You don't have an attic. You don't have a garage. So people have stuff that they need to be able to switch out. And that's why self-storage plays is deemed essential. You know, so it's, that, that was our argument with Toledo. It's like, we're in an opportunity zone. So you're trying to encourage development. We've kept everyone employed working during this pandemic. We didn't have one incident of COVID on our job site during right. the height of, uh, during the height of COVID. And, you know, we're deemed essential and you're prohibiting us from opening. Why? We've met, we've passed every single code and inspection. And we finally convinced them to give us a city of O. Well, good for you guys. I'm glad you made it happen. And, you know, I, I forgot to, to touch on this, but um, opportunity zones are amazing and extremely competitive. I've looked into them. I actually sat on an airplane a month ago with Ben Carson's right-hand man, Ben Carson's over opportunity zones and, and sat next to his right-hand man and talked about, you know, them potentially doing more and their plans for opportunity zones. But essentially it's a, it's a huge tax break that people can get by developing and putting money into these opportunity zones. So you mentioned, was it the one in um, Toledo or where was the one that was vacant for 40 years? That was Dayton. Dayton. That's right. So it was vacant for 40 years. You know, someone had failed at trying to redevelop it already. And that's what's so great about these opportunity zones is they say, okay, how do how can we convince your group to bring money into this? It's not going to be profitable otherwise. So we'll give them a, a huge tax credit in order to bring their money, their expertise, and their good practices, their business practices, and, and make this a profitable investment for them. And it's been great. I, I see, I know a lot of people, including yourself, that have done fantastic with the Opportunity Zones. Any words of wisdom or, or thoughts on Opportunity Zones? Anything you'd like to share there? Well, what's interesting is that it was actually created during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. And Steve Glickman was actually in the Obama administration who created the idea of it. And Obama didn't want to do anything with it. And, you know, as, as he said, like, look, I hate everything about Trump, but I love him because of opportunity zones. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, Trump was trying to avoid a, a scandal or, you know, some, something. And so instead of answering the question, he goes, I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to talk about opportunity zones. <laughs> and that's when Glickman's phone just popped off the, you know, off the desk and, you know, his phone lit up and all that sort of stuff. And Trump passed it. And, you know, so we, we were probably the first opportunity zone and privately funded PACE project in all of, all of the United States, if not oh, wow. for sure, Ohio. I know we were for, for a fact in Ohio. Wow. Um, and so those, those are two means which we were improving the capital stack. But, the, and we did it before the regulations even came out. So this is in November of 18. Yeah. And so 
I was literally on the phone with the IRS trying to understand how they were going to do it. Because at that point in time, the entire tax legislation on the Opportunity Zone was three quarters of a page. It was like <laughs> half of one page, you turn the page and it was like quarter and it said, you know, see this form. So I type in that form in IRS.gov and it says it does not exist. I'm like, oh, wow. <laughs> like, how come the form doesn't exist? So I called the IRS and, and you know, I left a message. It's like, if you would like to leave a message for Opportunity Zones, please do so and we'll call you back. <laughs> and so it was like two or three days later, I get a call from a 414 area code, which is where our Milwaukee project is. And I was thinking it was, you know, a neighbor, you know, someone involved with it up there. And I didn't recognize the number. So I it was in a meeting. I'd let it go into my voicemail. And then I go and listen. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so I called and left another message and then two or three days later they called me back I'm in another meeting I see the same number pop up and I'm like I gotta get out of this meeting sorry I gotta take this call yeah and I was on the phone with this woman for like an hour and she was describing to me like what they were trying to accomplish and this is what I didn't realize is that when Congress passes a tax law they say this is what this is what we want to try to accomplish and then they tell the IRS go figure out how to make it work hmm. and then the IRS comes back with suggestions and they say, okay, this is good. This is bad. Come back with more. And so that was happening throughout 18 and 19 when all this was occurring. And so what I found very interesting in this last election cycle was the fact that, you know, Trump is a real estate developer. Take away his politics, take away whatever he was done. He was criticized for utilizing exactly the tax code that Congress had set up for him to be, to take advantage of. Right. And, and I said this to my kids, I'm like, he's being hammered for doing what he was legally entitled to do. Yeah. And they're like, why are you getting upset? Because I said, because we're doing the exact same things. <laughs> yeah. You know, for someone to tell me that I am bad for taking the risk to invest in a community that is tremendous amount of risk and then, you know, not getting the reward for it or the benefits of taking advantage of it. You know, to me, that's, that's a little bit disheartening. Or, yeah. you know, disingenuous in, in terms of what they're trying to accomplish, especially from the people who wrote the legislation criticizing the person who was taking advantage of it. So I, I found that just, you know, from a real estate point of view, really disturbing because of the fact that we've done all those things. You know, it was like when I watched the, you know, the big short with my daughter, she's like, mm -hmm. I can't believe people were doing that. And I looked at her, I'm like, we were doing that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were buying properties with 10% down and, and building new homes. I said, that's yeah. what's paying for your college. I mean, that's, you know, that's there you go. Why we were flipping homes every two years. Yep. You know, people say that you're taking advantage of these tax codes or these tax breaks. You're not. You're 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 looking to maximize your rate of return. And that's, you shouldn't be penalized for that. You shouldn't be thought of as bad for doing these things because of the amount of risk we're taking. And part of it is that's how we're reducing the risk. That's how we're right. making it better. Right. So that's how it works. Well, that's here's just what my I little pedestal in terms of, you know, how tax incentives and those tax sorts incentives. of things. Well, I love yeah. it. And I'm glad you brought it up. And here's what I tell people. And, and I don't remember who I heard this from, but thank goodness our United States government realizes that they don't want to be the ones to provide housing. And thank goodness, they think that we can do a better job because we can. And so if you have this real estate investor developer who can provide better multifamily housing or better storage facilities, then 
what a fantastic way to incentivize that developer or that investor to take that risk that you're talking about. And the government is very, very smart. They know that we can do it for cheaper. They know that we can do a better job because ultimately it's our money and we want a return on it. And so they give us the ability to get those tax incentives to make it worthwhile for us. And that's what I think a lot of people don't understand is free housing does not mean free housing. You will pay for it if the government builds it. And you'll probably pay a lot more than you would if we build it or we develop it because we're good at keeping within a budget. As we know, because of the national debt, uh, the government is not. <laughs> and they realize that as well. And so they allow investors to take these great incentives to take the risk and also save the American people a lot of money. So um, yeah, I'm with you on, on the tax breaks. We, we love them. We love giving our investors a K-1 at the end of the year, or the first part of the new year and saying, hey, you got a great return on your money. And by the way, we provided a great product. We remodeled this apartment complex. We provided a great living situation for these people. And you get to say that you lost money on your taxes. Absolutely. I mean, you, you brought up an interesting point. A few years ago, my wife and I celebrated our 25th anniversary and she turned 50. So I'm like, okay, I can't screw this one up. I got to do, I got to do this well. So we were on this little Island in Indonesia and then we went to Singapore oh, cool. and it's all, it's all government regulated housing. It's like Legoland. Uh -huh. It's like, if you looked at it, it was just blocks of buildings that all yep. are exactly the same height. And they're the same configuration, but their orientation is different and they might have a little different facades. It's all government regulated housing. So the way in which they do it in Singapore is if, you know, 15% of the population is, is Hindu, mm -hmm. then 15% of the building is Hindu. If 17% of the building is Catholic, then 17% of that building will be Catholic. And they, they look at the entire population and it's representative of that. And their idea is to create no ghettos. Yeah. The housing is so expensive that no one can afford it. They all have to get subsidized housing from the government. Wow. And the only reason why it's successful is because Singapore makes so much money on their trade that they can do that. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, an apartment would be half a million to a million dollars. Holy cow. But it, it's all the same and you still have to apply. And even if you qualify, but you're that 1% outside the realms, you'll never get in that building. And so it's a very interesting model, but it's not sustainable, you know, but it's they're not sustainable and it's not freedom. We live in America because I like living in America because it's freedom. You get freedom to choose where you live and how you live. And wow, what an interesting, um, I, I always kind of thought of, you know, Russia, you know, the same exactly Lego stacked cement miles and miles of cement apartment complexes but it sounds like singapore is identical almost well I, I would i would disagree a little bit because they do do a much better job from an urban planning perspective of creating green spaces and parks in between the buildings okay. and so they do a very good job with that i mean there there's some very heavy pros to it and there's some very heavy negative from an american point of view i mean obviously their crime rates incredibly low you know you can't have a car that's over 15 years old they just make it illegal. Wow. So, you know, my Mercedes, I've had it since 2005, you know, it's 250,000 miles and it's getting 30 miles to the gallon. It's a phenomenal car. Yeah. I have to nice. get rid of it. Wow. So, you know, it's just a, a different way of life. Interesting. 
Well, hey, we're, we're running up on our time. I did want to learn about your why. I'm assuming it's your family, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. Sounds like you've got kids and a family. Just curious what you've got going on and, and why, you, why you still work as hard as you do. No, it's all about me. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Thank you. First ever. <laughs> no, I mean, my why is, is a little bit more complex. I, I mean, obviously, family is always up there, right? You know, it's the American dream to provide you know, for your kids. And I'm sure everyone who has kids understands that. Yep. I mean, I'm always looking to try to give my kids the best opportunity, opportunity to succeed. They can determine what that is, but I want to be able to put them in a position where they can succeed. That's, that's my definition of success. But my why is also combined with that is that I'm looking to always improve. And so when I, and I was joking about, it's about me. It is in the sense that I'm looking to improve as a person. And so that is, should be reflected in not only my personal life, but also in my business life. And so if everybody in our company is not growing, then we're dead. And so, you know, I, I have to grow in order for the people that, that work with me to grow. Mm -hmm. And so that, that is why I'm, you know, I'm, I'm embarking on a two-year transformation program wow. and it's, we meet quarterly for a long weekend. We turn off our phones and, you know, we're reflecting, we're processing, and we're working on leadership skills during that two and a half year period of time. And that's all focused on that. Not only can I have improved myself, but I can also help improve the people in my company and the people that we come in contact with. I love it. I love it. I'm a huge proponent of self-improvement, self-inflection. Sounds like an awesome two-year program. When did you start it? Just in the end of October. So I'm nice. one, one meeting down, one <laughs> 15 meeting more down. to go, <laughs> man, that's neat. I, I really like that. And I think that's so important. You know, the, the reason I started a podcast was to educate my investors, my sphere of influence, the people that trust me with their money have been buying properties from me for 10 years to help them understand what to avoid and, and what to learn and, and to bring people like you that have this amazing knowledge base who are so generous to share it. I've learned immensely from other people's podcasts and they're free. And I really like what you said. If, if you're not learning and growing, you're dead. You're either improving or you're getting worse. And so, you know, I'm constantly, constantly consuming material to improve and to grow and to learn because I believe you. I, I think you're absolutely right. If, if you're not growing, you're dead. And there's a lot of people that just don't want to put forth the effort. But I think that's the difference between successful investors who end up building wealth and people that don't. Any last thoughts for our listeners or anything that you would like to promote your company, anything that we can do to help you out? Well, one of the things that I'd like to do is to offer something free to your investors. We really appreciate you having us on, Sam. And, and in order to reflect that, we want to give them something free. So if they reference your show, well, then we will set schedule a, a free call with them. If they feel that they have a building that is, you know, worthy of converting into self-storage or know of one, and they think it's an opportunity, we'll sign whatever non-disclosure, non-circumvent. The, the world is too small for me to be poaching deals this way. So it's not our goal at all, but they can send us the property. We can go through with it, what makes it good or bad and why they should or should not do it. And also, wow. if they go to our webpage, which is coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com, there's a site that they can select. And if they click on that, they can get a free feasibility report. And the feasibility report is something wow. that we didn't have when we were doing multifamily. 
and it, it will show what we're looking for and why a property makes it. It's like 150 pages. And, you know, if, if you're really can't fall asleep, it's a good thing to do it <laughs> like 10, 11 o'clock at night and it will put you to sleep, but you'll learn a lot. I mean, it's, yeah. it's boring as can be. It's, it's the least sexy real estate stuff out there, but maybe I'm next a nerd because homes. I'm getting all excited thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> so you can download it, read it. And then, um, it, it don't not only talks about that specific property, but it also talks about the market of self storage in general and what, what people look for. I love it. I'll put that link in the comment section. Thank you. That's huge value. I mean, I always talk about the best way to be successful is just to provide massive value for others and not worry about what you're going to receive in return. And that right there, a feasibility study on, on this type of an asset class is massive. And so thank you for that. Thank you for being on the show. I mean, I'd love to talk to you again after, you know, another couple projects after we see where this economy is going, but I, I am assuming that um, self-storage is going to keep treating you very well. So thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having us. Sam. 